2 Kings chapter 18. Let's do a little quiz. First king of Israel. What was his name? Saul. Good job. Second king of Israel. What was his name? His son. Awesome. Whoa, almost, almost went down with my foot in the stirrup there. Ishbosheth. Okay. Ishbosheth. Uh, third king of Israel. David. Fourth king of Israel. We're not going to go all through the kings. Just, these are the easy ones, okay? Solomon. Uh, did I just say fifth? What are we on here? Next one. <laughs> fifth, Rehoboam. And what happened during Rehoboam's reign? The split of the kingdom. And who became, what, what kingdom was Rehoboam the king of? Judah. What about the other guy? Jeroboam was the king of Israel. Okay, awesome. Now, um, let's do this. Okay. Uh, Rehoboam. You can throw up your thumbs one way or another. Rehoboam. All right. Renee knows. Renee knows. Okay. Um, how about, um, Omri? Omri was Omri. Okay. <laughs> uh, how about, um, Ahab? Okay. How about Asa? Pretty good, pretty good. Maybe like here, but good. Uh, how about Jehoshaphat? Okay, good. Um, how about Joram? Eh. You don't know which Joram I'm talking about, but you got lucky because both of them were down. Two Jorams. How about Uzziah? Started out, but went... Right. Uh, what about Joash? Started out, remember... Uh, his grandma tried to kill him, and they hit him in the temple, and he grew up in the church. But at the end of his life, after his mentor died, um, and uh, this is not by any means any particular order. What about um, Ahaz? You can remember that because Ahab and Ahaz, both bad guys, okay? What about um, Hezekiah? Ding, 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 ding. All right, so tonight we're on Hezekiah, a five-star king of the nation of Judah. And uh, we are in 2 Kings chapter 18. The five-star king Hezekiah. Uh, let's see here where we, can, where we can hop to. We're actually not in verse... Uh... Okay, here we go. We'll just start in verse 1. We're going to skip over some that we studied last week. Now, it came to pass in the third year of Hosea the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. And man, there's a lot of underlining to do here. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places, broke down the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden image, and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nehushtan. So a uh, little bit of review. Uh, we've got a, this five-star king, awesome guy. The miracle of it is, is that his dad, Ahaz, was a wicked man. A wicked man who sold his soul to the devil, basically. He sold his soul to the king of Assyria, 
uh, tried to model the, an altar in the temple over an Assyrian model, uh, started tearing down the temple and building up Assyrian-type worship structures in it, actually shut the doors to the temple so that, temple so that people couldn't worship it anymore. Uh, just all around was a bad guy. In fact, he even sacrificed multiple children uh, by fire. And it was just a miracle that Hezekiah survived that, continued the line of David uh, through the tribe of Judah. And, uh, and here we have him, an and awesome, awesome guy, total miracle in the midst of having a, a not-so-great dad, a thumbs-down dad, did awesome things, tore down the high places, which was the stumbling block for all the kings of Israel and Judah, tore them down, trashed them down, even destroyed the pole that the bronze serpent hung on that Moses had set up. Uh, that, that was, it was a good thing when Moses did it, but the people began to worship this thing, calling it the bronze thing. And so uh, he even tore down this sacred relic, if you will, or this sacred thing, a historical artifact, tore it down because if your, your arm causes you to sin, what do you do? You chop it off. If your eye causes you to sin, you, cut, you gouge it out. It's better to go into heaven without those things than to go to hell with them. And something about, you know, Hezekiah knew that. Verse 5, he trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor were before him. So he trusted in the Lord. You might underline that uh, because so much of our sin comes back to us not trusting in the Lord. I had a really long conversation with one of our elders a few nights ago, a couple weeks ago actually, on trusting the Lord. You know, what causes us to obey and what causes us to disobey? Really, the root of it is trusting. We're either going to trust in the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob who delivered the Israelites from the Egyptians and brought them through the Red Sea and brought manna. And that's something that always would come back. The Lord would always say, remember how strong I've been on your behalf. We're either going to trust in that God or we're going to trust in ourselves or somebody else or a narcotic or a substance. We're going to trust in anything else. And that's an idol. That was what our men's retreat was all about. We're either going to worship the Lord and obey the Lord and trust the Lord, or we're going to worship ourselves or somebody else and obey somebody else or ourselves or some other thing. It's a worship issue. It's a trust issue at heart. You know, uh, you know, men will go to pornography because they don't trust the Lord to satisfy one of their deepest longings as a man. They don't trust that he's going to provide a wife someday or that he's going to fulfill that deepest need in the, the bottom you know, of their heart. Even when they do get a wife, they'll fall because they don't trust the Lord. Uh, they need something from this world to fill that void. Men will turn to alcohol or drugs to ease the pain, to you know, help them forget things that they've seen or things that they've done. And they'll turn to the gods of these substances to get the buzz or to get the rush or to get their mind off of things, you know, or to have a good time rather than turning to the Lord to fulfill the deepest needs of their heart. So it's always a worship issue. It's always a trust issue. And uh, here we see Hezekiah was in a good place with the Lord because he knew where his trust was. There was no other king like him. Five-star king, you know, even Solomon, you know, didn't top this guy. Verse 6, where he held fast to the Lord, he did not depart uh, from following him. And, uh, you know, that's a big thing that he 
held fast or he clung to the Lord and he did not depart from the Lord. He kept his commandments, which the Lord commanded Moses. And we all know if we've been any part of Kings for any amount of time, that's what the Lord wanted. He wanted our trust. He wanted us to cling to him. He wanted us to follow his statutes, his commandments, his testimonies, because we trust in him. The Lord was with him. And that's the promise that the Lord gave David. That's the promise the Lord gave Solomon. If you'll obey my commandments, I'll be with you the whole time. He prospered wherever he went. And he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. So that's something. Tonight is a night of Hezekiah. And we're going to see his his prospering, magnificent prospering. And we're going to see his rebelling against uh uh, the, the king of Assyria. He subdued the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory uh, from watchtower to fortified city. Uh, in verses 9 through 12, we just read of Israel being held captive by Assyria. We studied that in chapter 17, big time. You know, the year is 722 BC. Israel has finally taken north and east, you know, hundreds of miles away from home and they're dispersed so that they can't unite and lead a rebellion. Uh, the king of Assyria was a wise man and he just, he, he made it a deluded nation, you know, so that they couldn't rebel. And so he just, uh, uh, Israel at this point is completely spread out. Okay. There's a little bit of mixture going on in the nation of Israel at this time. And we talked about them last year. They're called the, or last week they were called the Samaritans, a little bit of Jewish, some, some Jewish in there, but a lot of paganism and they would mix Jewish practice with pagan practice. And they became the Samaritans that we read about in the gospel. You can listen to last week's study. Uh, verses 13 through 16, back to Judah in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities and took them. So before we get to the actual attack or, uh, yeah, the attack by Assyria on Judah now, Assyria just taken out Israel, the northern 10 tribes. Now it's coming after the southern two tribes, but really it's known as the one tribe of Judah. And before we get there, we want to know what's been happening so far in Hezekiah's reign. And so you can flip over to Second Chronicles, and you're, you're going to want to anyways, so you might as well put a pen back there or some kind of marker, but we're not going to read through a bunch of chapters. We're just going to do a quick, have you ever seen somebody speed read with their hands? They do that thing, and somehow they get all the data. Well, I did that this morning, so, uh, <laughs> so I'm, we're going to do more than speed read. Second Chronicles 29, we see that Hezekiah removed all the rubble from the temple that his dad had brought. Remember, he was tearing down the temple. He was putting other things up. He was kind of doing an extreme home makeover to God's home, and it was not a good thing. And he was tearing stuff down. There was rubble in the temple. And he, he had everyone remove all that rubble, and then he called Judah a big call. I love the calls in the Scripture. He calls Judah to come back to serving Yahweh, the God of their fathers. And there's this incredible revival that takes six takes place. 600 bulls and 3,000 sheep are slaughtered on this day. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, I remember when the butcher would come out to our ranch and they'd slaughter a few cows and a few steers or whatever. And you know, that was a big deal. <clears throat> but to slaughter 600 bulls, you know, and then 3, 
thousand sheep. That is a big undertaking. In fact, the end of the chapter says that uh, the priests, they ran out of men to do the labor. And so the priests uh, had some other Levites come and consecrate themselves. And they kind of had the temp agency bring in the, some more Levites to help with the sacrifice and the preparation. And uh, so other Levites come to help out. And then by the end of the chapter, verse 36, has, you know, this awesome sacrifice takes place. And Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced because this thing had happened or the events had happened so suddenly. I mean, we're talking like a call to repent. The men and women of Judah heard it. They forsook the ways of King Ahaz and followed hard after God. And they were so on fire for God in a day that they, they just worship radically. And then they rejoice at the end of the day because it, it happened so suddenly. It was something they were very excited about. And, and man, when revival happens like that, like we read about in Ephesians, you know, when the whole city got saved because, you know, the witches were burning their books, you know, and, and just, you know, the uproar had turned into revival there. Flip, you know, go to the next chapter, Second Chronicles chapter 30. Hezekiah sends out a runner uh, to out all of Judah and then even to the remnant of remaining Israel to come to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover in a way that hadn't been done for so long. I mean, there's been so much mixture and so much compromise. It'd been hundreds of years since Passover had been celebrated the way that God wanted it to be celebrated. So the runner goes all throughout Judah, calls the men back to, calls the whole families back to Passover down in Jerusalem. Then he goes up into Israel and he calls the remnant of Israel down to Judah and he says, Come to Judah. Don't harden your hearts. Don't stiffen your necks. Don't shrug your shoulders, but soften yourself and come down and celebrate Passover. And if you soften yourself, the men who took you captive, the king of Assyria, they will deal favorably with you if you'll just soften your heart. And it says that most of the men hardened their heart and, and laughed that this revival was taking place. But then it says, but some people did come. Some people did come. It says they softened their heart to the Lord and they came down to be a part of Passover down there. Uh, you know, we see that some men came, uh, you know, and by the time they got there to Passover, they weren't able to completely consecrate themselves and do everything according to the way that Moses was told to do Passover. And so, you know, there was fear in Hezekiah's heart because he wanted to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. And so there's this awesome prayer of Hezekiah, Lord, we're here crying out to you. We're here confessing our sins. We want to celebrate Passover in spirit and in truth, but we're running out of time and people are coming back and they want to celebrate. So Lord, would you look on them with mercy and would you hear their prayers? And here we see God has mercy on these men that in their heart, the Lord knew that they wanted him and they wanted truth. And the Lord heard their prayer and showed himself strong on their behalf. And so in verse 26 there, it says, So there was great joy in Jerusalem, for since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. Because this is hundreds of years. This is something like 19 kings later. And it hadn't been done. These are God's people. But there had been such compromise and idolatry that even in the better nation, Judah, it hadn't been, <clears throat> hadn't been done. 
And so uh, then it says the priests, the Levites, verse 27, arose and blessed the people. Their voice was heard and their prayer came up to the holy place in heaven. So nothing like this had been done since the days of Solomon. Worship happened. And do you remember the day that Solomon dedicated the temple and he prayed that long, awesome prayer that if anyone, whether they're Gentiles or sinners or they're, they've been held captive and taken off in war, if anyone turns to the temple and cries out to God and repents, God would hear them. And you remember what happened? The smoke went up into heaven. The Lord heard and, and, you know, his glory filled the temple and the priests sang out, you are good. You are good and your love endures forever. This is a similar revival that is taking place some 19 kings later in the day of Hezekiah. It's a beautiful thing. Beautiful thing. One chapter later, 2 Chronicles 31, the priests and the, and the Levites take an offering of tithes from themselves. Uh, in verse 10 there, it says, Azariah, the chief priest from the house of Zedek, answered and said, since the people began to bring the offerings into the house of the Lord, we've had enough to eat and have plenty left. For the Lord has blessed his people, and what is left is this great abundance. So the priest took this offering for their you know, living, uh, and, and there was an abundance. And man, whenever it comes to tithes and offerings, the Lord says in Malachi, you know, if you're not tithing and offering, you're robbing him. You're robbing God. But he says, test me in this. You know, give and see if there's not, you know, see if I don't open up the storehouses of heaven and there's not enough room in any of your, you know, you know, the, the storehouses will be just busting out with, uh, with blessing. And, and here we see that's the case. When the people came and gave, nobody was lacking anything. So that's kind of what had come up to this point, uh, had come up to this place. And so now, you know, even in the midst of revival and awesome stuff happening uh, here in second, keep your finger there in second Chronicles. We'll go back there in a little bit. But here in second Kings, it says that even in the midst of this revival, uh, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities and took them. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish saying, I've done wrong. Turn away from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will pay. And the king of Assyria assessed Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. So Hezekiah gave them all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the pillars which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. So... um, at this point, we see a little bit of the human here of Hezekiah. Even the best men are, are men at best. And here we see he kind of relies on his own strong arm. He tries to rely on the arm of the flesh here. When the king of Assyria, uh, Sennacherib, comes, you know, oh, I've done wrong. You know, and he, he has this false humility. Oh, I've done wrong. You haven't done wrong, Hezekiah. You haven't done wrong. You know, uh, be bold, be strong, trust in the Lord, watch the Lord push your enemy back. But instead he has this false humility and, and he's overly sensitive to this sinner or pagan king and he, he pays. And Hezekiah, we see, gives him this false sense of security by basically taking all that he gives. We're going to see him come back in this chapter. He wants more than just a tribute of money. 
he wants the kingdom. He wants everything, and he wants the people as slaves. And so we just see, you know, it's kind of sad. We see him stripping, you know, the temple, and, uh, and you know, we just see him struggling in his walk with the Lord here, doubting, just like we have times of doubting. You know, we all have times where we rely on the arm of the flesh rather than crying out for that strong arm of the Lord. And so he pays 300 talents of silver, which is about 30,000 pounds of silver, and three, 30 talents of gold, almost 3,000 pounds of gold. But we see Sennacherib doesn't just go home like we want him to, but he, he stays there and keeps taunting and keeps uh, being the bully. So that was the first invasion of Judah by Assyria. Now remember, uh, Judah's not going to be, you should know, Judah's not going to be held captive by Assyria. They're not going to be taken away. Israel is taken away by Assyria. Who is Judah eventually taken by? We'll get there later tonight, but Babylon, okay? So, so you should already know that things are going to probably turn out okay during these little battles and tiffs that happen. I don't know if tiff is really a word, but it is tonight. Verse 17, then the king of Assyria sent the Tartan, the Rabsaris, and the Rabshikah from Lachish with a great army against Jerusalem to King Hezekiah. And they went up and came to Jerusalem. When they'd come up, they went and stood by the aqueduct from the upper pool, which is on the highway to the Fuller's Field. So at this point, Chronicles tells us that it was after all of these deeds of faithfulness that Hezekiah had done, tearing down all the bad stuff, after these deeds of faithfulness that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, you know, he went thinking that he was going to win Judah over to himself. Okay, so he sends these guys with funky names that aren't actually their names, but it's their, their diplomatic title. So we've got the chief officers. We've got the commander-in-chief, the chief officer, the chief of staff, or the governor. These field commanders are brought up. And it says, and they came up to Jerusalem. Now, you guys have all heard the joke, you know, that your dad told you that when he was, when he was a kid, you know, he went to, to school uphill both ways in the snow, right? Well, pretty much that was the case when you went to Jerusalem, because any way you went up to Jerusalem, you know, was uphill. And when you got home, chances are you don't live in the valley, but you've got to climb another hill to get back home on your way home from Jerusalem. So hills everywhere, and, and they had to go up them to get there, up to the Fuller's Field here. So they're at the aqueduct, it says, where everybody is out there. The, the, the town is out there. They would wash their clothes there. You know, it was a common place to to get this water used for, you know, the bathing and the, the washing of the clothes. In verse 18, and they, when they called to the king Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household of Shebna the scribe and Joah, Shebna the scribe and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to them. So there's this little bit of a standoff of these chief officers outside the wall and then a whole bunch of, there's a crowd watching uh, and Hezekiah's officers there at this confrontation. Uh, then Rabbishakah said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, what confidence is this in which you trust? You speak of having plans and power for war, but they're mere words. And in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? Now look, you are trusting in the staff of this broken reed Egypt on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. So he comes, 
or it's not even senator, it's his delegates, you know, or it's his, his guys, they come and they just start taunting and they just start really demeaning Israel, you know. And Israel kind of had an ally at that point in Pharaoh. Then they're saying, don't trust in Pharaoh. You're going to lean on him and he's gonna, just going to go right through your hand. It's going to be even more painful. They're trying to demoralize these guys and mess with their morale so that they'll just surrender without a battle, okay? Verse 22, but if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he who tithe places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Now, therefore, I urge you, give a pledge to my master, the king of Assyria, and I'll give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to put riders on them. So they just gave them a whole bunch of money and took the gold off the temple. Now they want another pledge, you know, which obviously he's not going to hold good on his part. They're just empty words. And notice he's taunting them. I'll give you 2,000 horses if you can even ride them, you know. You guys are just weaklings. I bet you can't even ride a horse is what he's saying. How then will you repel one captain? of the least of my master's servants and put your trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen. Have I now come up without the Lord against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. So, you know, he's just so boastful. He's so arrogant that he's been doing it all. And he kind of makes this sarcastic statement like, your God told me to come up here and destroy these nations. And while there might be sarcasm, believe it or not, God did tell him to go up. He's being a tool right now of, of uh, God's you know, judgment and correction. He's the correcting rod against Israel. And, uh, and so you know, he, he's being sarcastic, but really the Lord did tell him that. <clears throat> then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, Shebna, and Joash, Joash said to Rebshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, you know, and whisper, you know, basically. For we understand it. And don't speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of all these people who are on the wall. You know, hey, you know, no, you're, you're demoralizing our people. You know, speak in your language. We know your language, but please don't, don't demoralize. Have you ever gotten in a fight with your wife in public? You know, uh, you know and you're like, let's, let's not do this here. You know, this is embarrassing for everybody. I never have, but I've watched other people. It's embarrassing for the hearers, am I right? We never fight. It's just in grace of God. But um, Jason, seriously, come on. He was in my confession group at the retreat, so he knows everything. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, so, so just whisper and don't talk. In there. We, don't want our God, we don't want our nation to hear. We don't want you to, to make them fear. And, uh, but the Rabshakeh said to them, Has my master sent me to your master and to speak these words and not to the men who sit at the wall who eat and dr- who would drink and uh, eat their own waste with you, you know, they're going to be, you know, suffering if we siege this city, so they might as well be able to hear it too. Then, then the Rabshakeh stood and called out with a loud voice in Hebrew and spoke, saying, hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you from his hand. Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. So don't let Hezekiah in his flattering speech, you know, give you confidence in this God, Yahweh. 
Uh, and let's just flip back. Hopefully you've got your finger there still in Second Chronicles to chapter 32, verse 6. <clears throat> it says, then he, Hezekiah, or Hezekiah, I, I put that in there. <laughs> then he, Hezekiah, sent military captains over the people, gathered them together in the open square of the city gate, and gave them encouragement, saying, be strong and courageous. You hear the charge to Joshua, don't you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria, nor before all the multitude that is with him. For there are more with us than with him. With him there's an army of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people were strengthened by the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Man, he's remembering what Elisha saw you know, with his servant, when the chariots of fire were all around them, way outnumbering the king of Syria. He's remembering, we've got more in the spiritual realm than they've got in the physical realm. And, you know, we're going we're gonna to be getting there. I guess we, we kind of were there in the Sunday gospel study. You know, when, when Peter went and slashed off Malchus's ear and Jesus in Matthew's gospel turns and says to him, you know, man, if I wanted to, I could send down you know, uh, 12 legions of, of angels, you know, or 72,000 angels if I wanted to, you know, but this must happen for the prophecy to be fulfilled that I, I got to be risen up on the cross to, for my body to make atonement for the sins of the people, you know, and, uh, you know, the Lord has this army at his disposal at any second. And, uh, and, and we're going to see him a little later on tonight. We're going to see this army of the Lord. So he strengthened the people. And so the people were strengthened right before they went and heard the Rabshakeh speaking to them. And so, you know, the, we're going to see these words didn't make them tremble, um, but, but they, they held their peace. Um, you know, do not, verse 31, back in Second Kings, do not listen to Hezekiah, uh, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make peace with me by a present and come out to me and every one of you eat from his own vine and every one of you his own fig tree and every one of you drink waters from your own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive groves and honey that you may live and not die. But do not listen to Hezekiah lest he persuade you, saying, the Lord will deliver us. So these are the lies of the Rabshakeh. And this is common in warfare. You know, the, the, you, you can hear the Germans, you know, with their propaganda to the Russians saying, comrade, you know, if you surrender, we will take you in as brothers, you know, only to slaughter those that would surrender. It's exactly what the king of Assyria wants to do right here. Come and you won't even know you're not in your land. You're going to fields and Freshwater streams with trout fishing, you know, and beehives everywhere for your clover honey, you know, and you know, just come, just come, guys. And uh, just a, a lie there. Verse 33, has any of the gods of the nations at all delivered its lands from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharavim and Hena and Iva? Indeed, they've delivered Samaria. Have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their country from my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? And believe it or not, his logic is actually pretty good. 
You know, I've defeated all these nations that have all these gods and none of them have, have delivered their people. So why should you trust in the Lord? That's actually pretty good logic. In fact, that's the logic that Israel should have had. You know, that's the logic that Judah should have had. As they came into the land and the, the land vomited out all of these different groups and, and people groups that were wicked and had all these nasty gods and Baals and Asherahs and Shamash and paganism and, you know, the Lord cast those out. So why in the world would Israel worship those gods whose people just got cast out? They're worthless. They're powerless. They're, you know, impotent. And yet Israel dabbled with idolatry. Even these gods that were powerless, they began to worship these gods. And so, you know, this Assyrian king had better logic than the foolish idol worships, worshipers of, of Israel and Judah. <clears throat> Verse 36, but the people held their peace and answered him not a word. For the king's commandment was, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn. You know, their mourning, their, you know, their, their outward appearance was the sign of an inward heart, a torn heart, because they heard these words that, that caused them to fear, the words of the Rabshakeh. Verse 9, uh, chapter 19, and so it was when, Hez, when King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. So as we read this, you can parallel this with Isaiah chapter 37. It's almost word for word identical. But, you know, as he hears it, he, he tears his clothes. He breaks his heart before God. He, he mourns that this is the state that their city is in. And, but you might underline it, though. He does a beautiful thing. He went into the house of the Lord. You know, what do we do when our back is against the wall? When we get the letter with the bill, you know, that has, you know, 300 more dollars than we can afford, you know, or somebody is suing us for something or the letter that's just hateful, you know, or the, the project at work that we just don't think that we can do, you know, uh, the cancer that we're told about that's, that's raging in our bodies or in our family member's body. What do we do? The temptation at first is to tear our clothes, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but before we tear our clothes, man, we should really go to the house of the Lord first. Expression of our trust is there. But regardless, you know, it's a beautiful thing. He goes into the house of the Lord. And then he sent Eliakim that was over the household, sheep and the scribe and the elders of the priests covered with sackcloth to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. So here we're introduced to Isaiah, uh, who, who's been back there in the days of King Ahaz, uh, but this is that day. So when you read Isaiah now, just know this is historical, historically what's going on in the land. And they said to Isaiah, thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of trouble and rebuke and blasphemy for the children have come to birth, but there's no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear all the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, is sent to reproach the living God and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. You know, man, hopefully God has heard these blasphemous words 
that God isn't powerful enough to deliver you. So don't even trust. Hopefully he'll hear and he'll just give them a what for and a how when or, you know, whatever. You're supposed, you know, that he'll just sucker punch him to the face and show him how strong of a God he really is. Uh, and, uh, you know, notice that, you know, the Lord, your God, he's the living God in verse four. He's the living God. He's the God that hears. He's the God, you know, that, that has been blasphemed. As this king of Assyria, is, his Rabbishikah keep, keep, keeps calling the king of Assyria this great king, this great king, this great king, when really all throughout the scriptures we're told who the great king is. The great king is Yahweh. And then uh, verse 5, so the, king, so the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah And Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid of the words which you've heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Surely I will send a spirit upon them, and he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. So these are prophecies we're going to want to remember. Thus says the Lord. We're going to hear it. Just as is the theme of Hebrews, thus says the Lord, the word of the Lord came to pass. Verse 8, then the Rabbishakah, am I the only one who thinks the Rabbishakah sounds like some sort of rapper? Rabbishakah, I don't know. Middle Eastern rapper, maybe? I'm not sure. Rabbishakah returned and found the king of Assyria warring against Libna, for he heard that he departed from Lachish. So can we get slide number two up there just to give you an idea what's going on? So uh, the king of uh, the king of Assyria has been down, I put a red dot, might be kind of small, but down bottom left, Lachish area. Thank you. Uh, that's, that's basically where the king of Assyria has been. He's on the bottom flank of Jerusalem, but he's, he's trying to conquer as much land as possible. There's this middle section, the middle section of Jerusalem, the middle section of that uh, right top, top brown there. Uh, that he hasn't conquered yet. So he just sent his Rabbishakah and his chief officers up there. In the meantime, he started a battle with Egypt. Okay? He started this fight with Egypt and he's starting to feel pressure from the south. And so he's starting to really think, oh man, if we're going to conquer Judah, we've got to conquer it now. And, and he kind of starts retreating and Kind of heads back, you know, all that brown is basically Assyrian-controlled territory at this point. Uh, and, he, and he starts retreating back to the top right of the screen. But in one last-ditch attempt, he, he threatens Judah one last time. And that's where we're at uh, in verses uh, 8 and 9. So, you know, all of a sudden the Rabbishika finds out that, that you know, the king is now fighting the south and he's departed from Lachish and, oh no, what's going on? There's confusion happening in the Assyrian army. Remember the prophecy, he's going to hear rumors and he's going to retreat. Verse nine, and the king heard concerning Terkacha, king of Ethiopia, look, he's come out to make war with you. So he again sent messengers to Hezekiah, one last ditch, re- retreat or we're going to have to really attack you really bad. He's bluffing though. And he says, Verse 10, do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Look, you've heard that the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands by utterly destroying them. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered those whom my fathers have destroyed? Gozan, Haran, Rezpah, and the people of Eden who were in Telazar? 
Where's the king of Hamath, king of Arpad, king of the city of Seraphim, Hina and Iva? So he gets this letter, and it's one last threat. And I love, you know, I love World War II history. Uh, Christmas of 1944, the Allies are pushing their way across Europe towards Germany, and they end up in Belgium. And, you know, they're doing a great push against the Nazis, but one night, Hitler has his force do this big thrust, and it, he, they basically crush through the Allied's lines in the Ardennes Forest. This is the coldest winter in 30 years, and, uh, and so the, the Allied troops have to retreat and pull back west. Well, the 101st Airborne are sent in to replace them, and they're basically sent in around Belgium area, and they're surrounded by the Germans. And they fight the Germans. They had no warm, they had no warm clothes, no ammunition, no food. They just got thrown in there really fast. So for a whole month, they're freezing their Royal Rockatoonies off. I mean, they are so cold. They are so hungry. They're getting slaughtered, but they're standing strong. And it's Christmas. I believe it's Christmas Eve. And the German commander sends a note to the, to the U.S. commander and says, you know, Merry Christmas. This is getting really bad around here. You know, let me give you one last chance to surrender. It'll be honorable. We'll treat you well. You'll never even know you left your land, you know. And, and you know, but if you don't, we're going to slaughter you, and it's going to be your own fault. And the commanding officer sent back a letter. Does anybody know what that letter said? McAuliffe, General McAuliffe sent this letter back. You know, he said, nuts. <laughs> That's what he said. And the Germans were like, I did not know what to say about that. I don't know. Horrible accent. But nuts, <laughs> you know, that's an American, like, what for, you know? And uh, that's basically what Hezekiah is going to give back. He's going to give back nuts. Forget you guys. We're going to conquer you. But before he sends that letter back, at first he gets this, and he doesn't know what to do. And verse 14 is, is beautiful. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. That's how he can end up sending a letter back that says nuts. Not in his own strength, but because he relied on the Lord. He went to the Lord, he cried out to the Lord, and he spread out his problem before the Lord. What do we do when our back's up against the wall? When it looks horrific, you know, when, when our family's going to die, when we think we're going to die, when we're going to lose our home, our car, you know, our job. What do we do? We err when we go to the world or when we just start complaining or whining before coming to the house of the Lord and spreading it before him. Peter tells us to cast your cares on the Lord for he cares for you. I don't know if you guys know the, the song. I don't know if it's a children's song. I just learned it growing up. It's this beautiful song that says, I cast all my cares upon you. I lay all of my burdens down at your feet. And any time I don't know what to do. I cast all my cares upon you. And when a little kid sings it, it brings tears to your eyes. But that's what Hezekiah does. He doesn't know what to do. He remembers his great, great, great grandfather, Jehoshaphat. And when he was surrounded by three invading armies. And what did Jehoshaphat do? He cried out to God and proclaimed a fast. And the Lord brought the victory. And Jehoshaphat's dad, Asa, when he was going to be overrun by over a million Egyptians and chariots, what did he do? Called out to the Lord. So Hezekiah does the same thing, lays it out before the Lord. 
And he prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord God of Israel, O Lord God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim. You know, the cry here is an awesome thing to look out because look at because it gives us the good perspective of our own situations. He says, he cries out to the Lord, you know, O Lord God of Israel, that's the word Elohim. And it speaks of the Lord in his trinity being, you know, in his plural, being almighty God omnipotent. He's almighty God omnipotent. And then he goes on to say, you dwell between the cherubim. You know what that means? It means he's on the throne. When you look at the Ark of the Covenant and you look at the, the cherubim on either side of the mercy seat and the mercy seat was where they would cover it, they would cover it with the blood of the lamb on the day of atonement. It's a picture of our king who sits on his throne, shed his blood for our mercy. And, and we're reminded that he dwells between the cherubim. You know, he's on the throne. And whenever we, you guys have probably said it, right? When you're going through the trial, have you ever let your lips confess that? God's still on the throne. That's a powerful thing to let your lips confess. We see Hezekiah did it with his lips. You're on the throne. You dwell between the cherubim. You are God, you alone. Not the Rabbi Shikaz God, not the Senator Ribs God, not the, you know, anybody else. You are God alone. Of all the kingdoms of the earth, you've made the heaven and the earth. And when we declare in our trial that God is the creator, what can he not do? Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth. By your power and outstretched arm, there is nothing too hard for you, Jeremiah says. I challenge you in your next trial to confess with your mouth in the presence of others, he is still on the throne, he is God Almighty, he's the creator, and though my flesh be destroyed, like Job says, with my eyes, I will see this God. I'm going to live and I'm going to be with him. No matter what happens throughout this trial, he's still on the throne. Verse 16, you know, he cries out for the Lord to hear. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Hear the words of the senator, the king, which he sent to reproach the living God. Truly, Lord, the king of Assyria, kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations of their lands. They've cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they destroyed them. Both Isaiah and Jeremiah make a big point in their prophecies to say, these things are just pieces of wood you brought out of the forest after cutting down with your chainsaw. You know, they're not gods. They're just things made with men's hands. It's foolish to trust in them. Verse 19, now therefore, O Lord our God, I pray, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord God and you alone. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah saying, thus says the Lord God of Israel, because you've prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. And as you read the Psalms, you constantly read, I cried out to the Lord. I cried out to the Lord. I cried out to the Lord. But you also hear, and he heard me. And, and here we see this, I've heard, I've heard your cry. <clears throat> this is the word that the Lord spoke concerning him. So this is the nuts letter, okay? Back to the king of Assyria. The virgin, the daughter of Zion has despised you and laughed you to scorn. 
The daughter of Jerusalem has shaken her head behind your back. You know, the virgin, they're, they're talking about this is a city that's never been taken since the days of David. You know, it's a virgin concerning that. And we're laughing at you as your confused army kind of tries to scare us as you're retreating back to, to Assyria. You know, um, we're, we're laughing at you. We're shaking our head. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes on high? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your messengers, you've reproached the Lord and said, by the multitude of my chariots, I have come to the height of the mountains, to the limits of Lebanon. I will cut down its tall cedars and its choice cypress trees. I will enter the extremity of its borders to its fruitful forest. I have dug and drunk strange water. And with the soles of my feet, I have dried up all the brooks of defense. So obviously you've heard the emphasis there. It was all about the king of Assyria. I, I, I. You guys have probably heard that the middle letter of the word sin is I. The middle letter of the word pride is I. And here this guy is covered in pride and sin, and he is his own God. Verse 25, did you not hear long ago how I made it? This is the Lord talking. From ancient times, I formed it. I formed Assyria from from ancient times. Now I've brought it to pass that you should be for crushing fortified cities into heaps of ruins. Therefore, their inhabitants had little power. They were dismayed and confounded. They were as grass of the field and the green herb as the grass on the housetops, the grain blighted before it's grown. Hey, king, I am the one that created you. I am the one that has raised you up to be this tool of chastening to these pagan lands, even my own Israel who has, who has forsaken me. It wasn't you, it was me and my sovereignty. In verse 27, but I know your dwelling place. In other words, I know where you live. You watch your mouth, boy. You're going out and you're coming in and your rage against me. Because your rage against me and your tumult have come up to my ears. Therefore, I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips. And I will turn you back by the way which you came. You know, the hook and the bridle and all that was, you know, the Assyrians were violent. They were like the Nazis, if not worse. And, and they would lead away their slaves with these horrible devices, like an animal being led off to their slaughter. And the Lord saying, I'm going to do that to you. And this shall be a sign to you. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with a shield, nor build a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come into this city, says the Lord. For I I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. So the Lord is just so faithful there that he is going to, to come through strong. And it came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. So one angel kills 185,000. 185,000, in case you're wondering how that looks. That's a lot of dead corpses on the ground. The incredible thing is secular uh, historians attest to this battle taking place where they lost this great amount. And uh, Herodotus, I want to say, was the Greek historian uh, that did that. Now remember, Jesus could have called down 
12 legions of angels to protect him. And one of those angels could have done this. So, and, and he wasn't even done. You know, we see the same thing in Second Samuel chapter 24 when the plague was hitting Jerusalem after the census and that one angel is just killing the multitudes there. So the Lord just, man, his glory uh, there uh, as he's using the angel. And uh, verse 36, So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away, returned home, and remained at Nineveh. So it came to pass as he, worship, as he was worshiping in the temple of Nisroch, his god, that his son Adrimelech and Sherazar struck him down with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat. Then Eskaradon, his son, reigned in his place. Uh, so, um, so we see that Second Chronicles tells us Sennacherib returns shame-faced to his own land. He went back with his tail tucked between his leg, with his leg between his legs, and he was a shameful. And he goes back to Nisroch, his god, and as he's worshiping there, the very god that he was boasting about doesn't protect him. As his own two sons, which was prophesied, uh, cut him down. They flee, and one of his other sons uh, take the throne there. And uh, so Sennacherib, you know, his pride came to an end there in the temple of his God. Chapter 20, you know, pretty, pretty short chapter. We're going to go through it tonight. In those days, because we want to get through Hezekiah for one thing. Um, you know, the whole story is, just, is really awesome to see God's hand on his life. In those days... Hezekiah was sick and near death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, went to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Then he turned his face toward the wall and prayed to the Lord. So, you know, when Isaiah the prophet comes and tells you this, you know it's for real. You've been given your, you know, your your last week or whatever it was, uh, it's confirmed by the prophet that the Lord said, you're going to die. And so, you know, if Hezekiah is not in one trial, although the guy's awesome, he's in another trial. It's been said, you're either, you know, going into a trial, you're in a trial, or you're coming out of a trial. You guys could probably say amen to that, huh? You know, we're, we're always in a trial, but we're going to see the strong hand of the Lord on Hezekiah's behalf, his strength in the midst of Hezekiah's weakness. <clears throat> and so he turns to the wall And he prays to the Lord and he says, you know, remember now, O Lord, I pray how I've walked before you in truth with a loyal heart. I've done what was good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. So he's wailing and he's crying out to God, you know, Lord, don't you, man, I've been faithful. You know, I don't want to die, basically. And please remember all that, all that I've been a part of. And he just prays out this prayer. And, you know, it's an awesome prayer. In verse 35, you know, or verse 4, it says, It happened before Isaiah had gone out into the middle of the court that the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Return and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I've heard your prayer, I've seen your tears, surely I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord. So he cries out to God, great prayer, true prayer, one thing's missing. Can anybody pin it? He forgets to cry out, thy will be done. You know, he just wants to live. And uh, we're going to see at the rest of the chapter tonight, you know, that he finished strong, he finished well, but the Lord's will might have been that he had gone then, you know, and in his going, he would have 
suffered a little bit less towards the end of his life that we'll talk about in a little bit. But it's incredible to see how through prayer, the Lord's mind can be changed. You know, Malachi tells us, excuse me, you know, Malachi tells us that, you know, the Lord doesn't change, but that's speaking of his character. Throughout the Old Testament, there's many times when people will cry out for God's mercy, for a city to not be destroyed, this and that, and God is willing to listen and and hear and, and, you know, in his sovereignty, at the same time, we're seeing his sovereignty through him allowing other things to happen. And here we see that the Lord's mind is changed, that Hezekiah is not going to die. Verse five says, you know, I've heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. What an encouraging thing for us as we go through trials and as we cry out, you know, the Psalms say that, you know, he, he puts our tears in a bottle and writes our cries down in his book. You know, that's the merciful God. That's the compassionate God. I love Second Chronicles chapter 1, how it says that, you know, the God of all comfort, you know, he's, he's the God of all comfort, and he comforts us with the same comfort which we ourselves are going to in turn comfort others. So if you're going through a trial tonight, if you're struggling, if you're wailing like Hezekiah, he hears you, okay? putting your tears in the bottle, numbering your cries. He's a compassionate God. He's a God of comfort, and you're not by yourself. But in your prayer, make sure to cry out, thy will be done. And I think sometimes we're too slow to pray a prayer like Hezekiah, where we hear the news and we pray out a great prayer of faith that, Lord, would you not save this person before they die? Or would you not you know, let me live a little bit longer. And, you know, I never had this feeling right after my dad passed away. But about two years later, I just had this sense in my heart, a, a wish in my heart that I could have gone back. And when my dad was on his, his deathbed there in the hospital, I just, you know, you only have one chance to do this, you know. But I, I at this point, even today, I, I just wish I would have one last cry of faith, one last wail, one last pleading with God that if it be his will that my dad would live and be healed from this brain cancer and this stroke. And yet I didn't. I kind of just went with the words of the doctors and we prayed about removing the breathing tube and, you know, you can't go back, but, but man, may we be those types of people that when we hear the news, we do take great steps of faith. We do cry out great prayers of faith. But may it always be mingled with, of course, Lord, your will be done. Of course we want your will to be done through it all. And so, verse 6, so I will add to your days 15 years. I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Then Isaiah said, take a lump of figs. So they took and laid it on the boil and he recovered. So this, this lump of figs, um, you know, well, first of all, let's talk about the boil. Isaiah chapter 38 is the parallel passage. You're like, what boil? Well, Chronicles tells us he had a, a boil. And actually, maybe it does a little bit later say that. Um, and it was so excruciating. Listen to some of the descriptions of Hezekiah. He, he, he writes this prayer once he kind of gets his death sentence and then once he's told he's going to live he writes this prayer or this song and in it he says a few things like this in the prime of my life i must pass away 
He's 39 years old right here. So he's bummed. He's so young. And he says, day and night, you know, you torment me. I'm racked with pain until morning. All my bones are broken. I chatter like a, like a, fir, like a, um, not a fern. Uh, I chatter like a bird. I moan. My eyes falter. Bitterness has been my lot. And then he's given the, this 15 years from Isaiah. And in Isaiah, he says there, the Lord was ready to save me. Therefore, we will sing my songs with string instruments all the days of our life in the house of the Lord. So he was going through some pain and some depression and some agony uh, with this boil that he has. And uh, secular writers say it might have been the bubonic plague, although there's no basis for this claim. Uh, one early opinion was that he had a throat abscess that uh, ended up bursting open and healing rapidly. But what does Isaiah do here when he's told he'll have 15 more years? He makes this rap, this Chronicles tells us it's this special, um, uh, the word is a poultice, or it's kind of like a plaster wrap of you know, medicinal herbs, the medicinal herbs of that day. And as they are caked on wet and wrapped, as they would dry, they'd been known to suck out poison out of wounds and infections out of wounds. And so an incredible thing we see here is Isaiah using modern medicine to treat Hezekiah's wound. And that's something we see in scripture that God does use doctors. Many cults will tell you that you're not allowed to use doctors. You know, you can't use medicine, but God uses it. In fact, Paul even tells Timothy to use the modern treatment of the day for dysentery, drink a little wine to help your stomach. That was the modern treatment of that day. And so, you know, throughout scripture, we're told, yeah, you know, use the doctor. There are treatments. And yet we err on the other hand, like Asa, in that we don't go to the Lord first. And Asa had a foot disease, you remember. And he didn't, he, it says he refused to go to the Lord and he only went to the physicians. And so he died from his foot disease. That's a horrible way to go. You know, uh, James tells us if we're sick, go to the elders and let them pray. That should be the first thing that we do. And yet, I myself am guilty. The first thing I do is I go to the physicians. I go, you know, man, go to the Lord first. Hezekiah here, they use the medicinal treatment of that day, uh, a treatment of figs wrapped around his leg there, kind of a paste. And so, uh, verse 8, then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, what's the sign that the Lord uh, will heal me? And what shall I uh, go up to the house of the Lord the third day? And Isaiah said, this is the sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do the thing which he has spoken. Shall the shadow go forth 10 degrees or go backward 10 degrees? And Hezekiah answered, it's an easy thing for the shadow to go up 10 degrees, but no, let the shadow go backward 10 degrees. So Isaiah the prophet cried out to the Lord and he brought the shadow 10 degrees backward by which it's gone down on the sundial of Ahaz. So <clears throat> awesome thing here as the Lord gives a sign and the Lord does give signs. You know, Jesus does rebuke the Pharisees and the scribes saying that this wicked, perverse generation seeks after a sign, but they're not even going to believe even if they get the sign. Well, here's your sign, Jesus says, uh, the sign of Jonah. I'll be in the ground for three days, but then I'll rise again. You remember uh, Hezekiah's dad, Ahaz, was told by Isaiah, hey, the Lord's going to bring you the victory here. Uh, what do you want to sign? What kind of sign do you want? 
And Ahaz in his wicked heart said, I don't want a sign from God. I don't even want to seek after God. And Isaiah said, well, you're going to get a sign anyways. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and you shall call his name Emmanuel. So the Lord does give signs. And here he does this radical thing by making the sun not go forward 10, you know, oh man, it got darker. Does it seem like it got dark early tonight? Have you ever said that? Does it seem like it got dark early tonight? Hezekiah says, that's too easy. Let's make it stay light 45 minutes longer. And so it did. It stayed light 45 minutes longer. Some interesting things are that, you know, back in Hezekiah's day, there was a, a, a symmetry to the calendars. Uh, there were 360 days in the year. And each 12 months had 30 days. But then after Hezekiah's day, they, they switched over to understanding that the earth is kind of tilted on its axis. And so they started, you know, having a, a funkier calendar that works better with this tilted axis. So some people believe, who knows, we'll know one day, that some sort of meteor or something happened in the, in the heavenlies that knocked the earth, maybe a meteorite hit the earth and knocked the earth onto its axis so it spins that way uh, in, in, and, uh, you know, giving the day 45 more minutes. Some people think that. But the interesting thing is it's after this moment that they start switching over to this newer calendar that, that makes up for that shift in the planet. So who knows, but interesting. I bet, I bet we will just be wowed when we get to heaven and we find out some awesome mysteries. <clears throat> but this sign was done. Reminds you of Joshua, doesn't it? Joshua chapter 10, when he's going to go fight against uh, the king of Jerusalem of that day. And he's like, we're going to run out of daylight and we're going to probably lose because of that. So Lord, will you give me more daylight? And they're given a whole day's worth of daylight. The sun doesn't go down. And so that's a, an awesome story there in Joshua's life. At that time, Barodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah. For he heard that Hezekiah had been sick and Hezekiah was attentive to them and showed them all the house of his treasures, the silver, the gold, the spices, spices, the precious anointment and all his armory, all that was found among his treasuries. There was nothing in his house or in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. So Hezekiah was very popular uh, in this day. Um, you know, he, he had conquered the Assyrians. He had defeated cancer. He'd been given 10, 15 more years to his life, and, uh, you know, Babylon uh, appreciates this guy. And Hezekiah gets a little puffed up, does a foolish thing, and shows them everything in his kingdom. Now, notice all the he's and him and, and his, you know, in that sentence. He, he began to get a little puffed up, and this is why we're beginning to think it might have been better if he would have just died when God had originally thought, it's a good time for you to go, Hezekiah. You, you'll finish completely and totally strong. Flip over to Second Chronicles chapter 32. We really are almost done. Just bear with me a little bit longer. Second Chronicles 32, 22. The Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Assyria on every side. He guided them on every side. Verse 23, many brought gifts to the Lord at Jerusalem and presents to Hezekiah, king of Judah, so that he was exalted in the sight of all nations thereafter. In those days, Hezekiah was sick and near death. And he prayed to the Lord and he spoke to him and gave him a sign. But Hezekiah did not repay according to the favor shown to him for his heart was lifted up 
Therefore, wrath was looming over him and over Judah and Jerusalem. And aren't you just saying, no, Hezekiah, you were a thumbs up guy. Then Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart. He and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. Yay, Hezekiah, you humbled yourself. Praise God. Jump down to verse 31. However, regarding the ambassadors of the princes of Babylon, whom they sent to him to inquire about the wonder that was done in the land, God withdrew from him in order to test him that he might know all that was in his heart. So there's this moment where the Lord steps back and sees the real, you know, he starts bragging about, oh, look at all these buildings that I've done. Second Chronicles says that, you know, it's, it's like the days of Solomon here. Look, what, look at this, look at this room, look at this building I built, look what we've done, I, I, I. And he's convicted of his pride, but he humbles himself, you know, before the Lord. The Lord knows how to humble us, doesn't he? You know, right before church tonight, I went for a mountain biking ride. I was feeling pretty good, you know, I had my brand new mountain biking pants on that I got for Christmas that I hadn't worn yet, you know. Had them on, strutting around the house. I, what do you think, honey? You know, uh, put my new bike helmet on that I hadn't worn yet, or I wore it once, you know. And I got my cleats on, mountain biking cleats, my camel back on. Russell's, hey, Daddy, can I come with you? You sure look cool, you know. And Lindsay's looking out the garage door at me and talking to me as I'm getting ready. And, nice helmet, nice pants. Yeah, no, I'm pretty cool putting my gloves on, you know. Go to mount up onto my steed. Of course, I have, of course, my seat is up here, you know. New pants on that, you know, they're a little baggy down here. And as I go to get on, I just get, no, but I get completely rejected by my bike, you know. (laughs) You know, my wife laughs at me like crazy. I push the garage door button and ran off. But the Lord knows how to humble us, you know, when we get just a little bit prideful. And uh, so he was getting a little bit prideful there, and uh, yet he, he did humble himself. And so verse 14, then Isaiah, the prophet, went to King Hezekiah and said to him, what did these men say and from where did they come to you? So Hezekiah said, they came from a far country, from Babylon. They wanted to meet me. I added that part, but you know, his pride, he's excited that they're from Babylon. And he said, what have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, they've seen all that's in my house. There's nothing in my treasures I have not shown them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that's in your house that your fathers have accumulated to this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. They shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So he's humbled here by Isaiah. And he humbles himself, we know from Chronicles. Um, but at this point, Babylon's about 100 years away from being a superpower. Right now, they're just a part of Assyria. It's a town, a city in Assyria. And, uh, and you know, they're going to take away these men. They're going to make eunuchs. And he's speaking ahead of who? Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And Hezekiah is humbled by this. In verse 19, he says to Isaiah, The word of the Lord which you've spoken is good. This is a good rebuke. You know, that was a faithful wound to me. You know, I want to repent. And he goes to say, will there not at least be peace and truth at least in my days? And so, uh, you know, hopefully for these next 15 years, there will be peace in my life here. Now the rest of the act of Hezekiah, all his might, and how he made a pool and a tunnel and brought water into the city, are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? 
So Hezekiah rested with his fathers. Then Manasseh, his son, reigned in his place. So he made a pool, a tunnel, and brought water into the city. Now this is an exciting thing that we'll close with. And we've got Barb back from Israel. Is, Barb, did you go to Hezekiah's tunnel? You didn't go to Hezekiah's tunnel. Okay, so here's a little Israel tour for you, Barb. Um, so basically, uh, Hezekiah's tunnel, we can go to the next, the next slide. It's funny because as I went to BiblePlaces.com today, Hezekiah's tunnel was the featured place in Israel today on BiblePlaces.com. So that's kind of cool. But basically, Hezekiah thought ahead, there's probably going to be some sort of siege on our city. We're lacking water. So here's a cross-section of the Mount Moriah, um, the Mount of Jerusalem. And basically, from the Pool of Siloam, bottom left, winding uh, around there, that blue line, wrapping all around to the, to the springs of Gihon, or Gihon uh, Hezekiah made this 1,777-foot tunnel carved out of solid rock about you know, 50 feet under the ground. And then, of course, it gets deeper underground as he went along towards this spring. You know, the, the scriptures say that he stopped up the springs of Gihon on the right and made a tunnel so that all the water coming up out of these springs would go through this tunnel. And today, you can go to this tunnel and you can walk through this tunnel. It's just a spectacular site to get to go to. We can go to the next uh, slide. Here we have the pool of uh, Siloam, which is inside the city walls. So this is where they came and got all the water that would come. This is, you guys remember the pool of Siloam from John's gospel, where uh, you know Jesus healed the lame man here, and Jesus uh, put mud on the blind man's eyes and told him to wash it off in this pool. So it's been built upon, although now there's excavation around it. Uh, awesome excavation, showing original stairs and everything. And today you can go to Israel, you can walk through here, uh, this is the side you come out on, but let's do the next slide. You've got these two foot wide tunnels by about four foot high, and then sometimes it'll get about 20 foot high. But everything you're looking at, all those little marks are original chisel marks, about 2,000, you know, way over 2,000 years old, about 3,000 3, years old, 2,500 years old. Um, original markings, original little nooks that they would put candles in uh, for their lamps. And it's this incredible archaeological wonder of Jerusalem as you get there. Uh, halfway through the tunnel, you can go ahead and look ahead. There's this spot where an inscription was written, um, and you can see uh, it's right near this, but those are some places where candles were, and we've got the, the ash there from the candles. But here's what the Siloam inscription in the middle of the tunnel uh, says. When the tunnel was driven through, and this is the way in which it was cut through, while we were, there were still axes chipping each man toward his fellow. So basically, one group of diggers dug from the spring of Gihon, one group of diggers dug from the, uh, the pool of Siloam, and they started just digging underground, hopefully meeting somewhere in the middle. Okay, so as they're digging, each one going towards each other, uh, while they were still three, there were still three cubits to be cut through, there was heard the voice of a man calling to his fellows, for there was an overlap in the rock to the right. Uh, and when the tunnel was driven through, the quarrymen hewed the rock, each man toward his fellow, axe against axe, and the water flowed from the spring toward the reservoir for 1,200 cubits, and the height of the rock above the head of the quarrymen was 100 cubits. Uh, so there was this difficult feat of them meeting halfway, and yet as they're digging, as they're digging, 
like, are we ever going to get there? Uh, they started hearing voices to the right. And so they just, they had started passing each other. And so they just cut and there they were, axe against axe, digging through. So beautiful thing today is you can, you get to that seam where they met halfway through and now you can walk through, you have to have your shorts on and you'll walk through the water there. But the cool thing about it is that it all testifies that the scriptures are truth and that Hezekiah was an actual king who made this tunnel that you can go to and walk through today. And there's an inscription in the rocks writing the story out for you. So I mean, an exciting thing, but Hezekiah passed away and rested with his fathers. And you just wonder, did he think that those 15 years were enough at that point? But uh, let's go ahead and have, uh, you know what, it's, it's 820. We'll go ahead and just close with prayer tonight. And Lord, just as Hezekiah was given those extra 15 years, Lord, would you teach us to number our days? We realize that life is just a vapor. One minute it's here, one minute it's not. And so, Lord, everything that we do, Lord, we want to be doing it according to your will, knowing that we could see you at any second. And, Lord, we thank you that uh, you, are the, you are the one that we can come to and we can cast all of our cares upon you, for you care for us, Lord. I pray there wouldn't be a person here who fails to bring those burdens and lay them down at the foot of the cross. We see how much you love us when you paid the price for our sins with your blood. How could we not give you everything in our lives and trust in you? Thank you for this example of the man Hezekiah in the scriptures. He's just a guy that we want to follow in clinging hard to the Lord, laying our burdens before you, running to the house of the Lord when we're in a trial. And Lord, we also just learned tonight that we don't want to be puffed up in any of our ventures, but we want to have a humble heart Humble heart before you, always giving you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, have a great night. See you at the Pulse tomorrow, hopefully. And, uh, you know, there's still no word from the family on Jerome's memorial. So we may end up just having a memorial as a spiritual family. But we will keep you guys posted. It will be sooner than later. And uh, God bless you guys. Have a great evening. Thanks for staying a little later tonight. Yeah, Jerome went home to be with the Lord, yeah.